scary girl. Hi, everybody. Hey, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, mysteries, cults, conspiracies, the supernatural, paranormal, or even just the generally weird, eerie, spooky, strange stuff that we want to talk about that week. Why is that, Sarah? Uh, That's because it's our show and and not yours. If it's your first time listening to the podcast, stop, stop, go back, listen from the beginning. Episode one, Grumble Thorpe did my mouth a little bit. Drama, not drama. We're recording not in our regular studio space today. You might notice we don't have that beautiful, wonderful audio quality that we usually have. Just a little miscommunication about the timing of the recording. You know, drama. Stuff happens. Yeah. Drama, not drama. Drama, not drama. Just not, just life. Yeah. And we're, we're getting back to our roots. Our drama is recording together in Sarah's space. On one microphone. One microphone. Living our best life. Frozen pizza. We're almost at 200 episodes. Um, And you know what, y'all? Like I said, go back and listen from the beginning. Welcome back. You know all that good good stuff. Of course you do if you've listened like you should be doing. Blah, blah, blah. Merry Christmas Eve, Eve. Eve, Eve. Eve, Eve. After all, there's only two more sleeps till Christmas. That's, yeah, that's Christmas. Christmas. James! James! And, you know, have yourself a merry little bluntsmith. Yeah, whatever you're celebrating, enjoy. If you're not celebrating, hopefully you got some time off work. Get it together. Yeah. You know, get some self-care in there. Yeah, do whatever you gotta do. And listen to our show. Listen to our show, yeah. Those are... That's all we have on your to-do list this week. Yeah. That's it. That's it. I'm excited. What are you getting into for Christmas? Uh, I'm going home. To Tejas. Yep. And that's really uh, about it. I don't even think I'm getting any sort of like crazy time off of work. I'm Mm. pretty sure we're just working right through. Yeah. Yeah. But you're going home too. I am. I'm going home to North Carolina. Yeah. To with my brother and my sister who both listen to this podcast. Hi. So I can't talk about what I got them for Christmas this episode. But next episode. I can talk about next episode because this episode... They'll, you know, it'll still be pre-Christmas. I don't want them to hear any presents that are, they haven't opened yet. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Got it. So, anyway, I'm excited. It's going to be good. Good times. Yeah, we got traveling coming up, so, you know. Yeah. But we're still bringing you this content. You're welcome. You're welcome. You are so welcome. You're so welcome. That's right. It's also exciting, because these are some Stephanie episodes. Yeah. If y'all are ready for them. Are you ready for them, Sarah? I'm so ready. Because listen, y'all, we got started and I was like, Stephanie, I don't have anything. I don't, I don't have anything. And she's like, don't worry. I have too much. I have a lot. And so now, but didn't tell me what it was. true. So I'm very intrigued as to what it is that she has so much about. I'm, I, uh, and I'm also like this, uh, I feel like Sarah is usually way more prepared than me. So for me, it's like, oh, it's fine. This is. You're so coming meant down to, be. to my level at this point in time. We're all right. We're all right. It's the holidays. So, it's the holidays. Um, with that being said, hey, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Leslie. Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? So, I'm not talking about any. Ghosts. All right, never mind. Episode over. Thank you guys um, so much for being but here. But here's what's going on. I researched two things. 
And one of the things that I researched um, is like a regular medium-sized story. And then the other thing that I researched is a really long story. So it's actually going to be a two-parter. So today I'm going to do the first thing that, I talk, that I'm talking about and then the first part of the second thing. And then next week's episode will be just part two of my of my second story. I'm ready. You're ready? Yeah. All right. So if this is first story. This yes. Is a, did this story lead you to the second story, or are they not related at all? They're not related at all. Okay. All okay. right. All right. All right. The other one came up, like, totally independently. All right. Let's so, go. So, the first thing that I'm going to talk about is what I had messaged you about, which I asked you if if we had ever covered Shen Yun, because I didn't think that we did, or if you knew anything about it. So, that's what I'm talking about today. Just the jokes we've made. So, right, I was like, I feel like we've referenced it. Um, if you're not familiar, Shenyun, if you live in a major city, you have seen a billboard for this dance troupe called Shenyun. Or Shen the Yun. flyer, like they leave flyers everywhere. everywhere. Where there are these beautiful dancers with like lots of fabric, yeah. right, and they're jumping through the air and there's lots of fabric trailing behind them. And it's like Chinese tradition like, come see this dancing at Shenyun at the, you know, University Pavilion Center in whatever city you live in. And they are always doing shows. Yes. And they apparently always need an audience. They run all the time. They're always looking for people. And an unlimited marketing budget. Now, I see them a lot here in Philly, but I initially remember seeing them when I lived in New York, too, right? So I used to see them on subway trains and stuff. And at one point, I just kind of Googled them, and I was like, what is up with this thing shenyan shenyan um but one of those things that happens you know when you're like did you mean and you type in shenyan with google and google is like shenyan cult and you're like i thought they were dancers i thought this was a dance troupe like what is this so what is shenyan is it a dance troupe is it a cult what do they know let's find out do they know things so Shenyun, uh, it actually means Divine Rhythm Dance Troupe. That's what Shenyun means. Oh, yes. And it is a U.S.-based nonprofit performing arts company that tours internationally, producing dance performances and symphony concerts, operated by Falun Gong, which is a new religious movement. Okay? So Falun Gong is the religion that it is associated with. Okay. Okay? So this is the nonprofit that this religion started this to is make some money. this is one of their two outside of the church kind of ventures that brings attention to the church. Got it. Okay. Um, it's basically propaganda for the church. So, and it doesn't really have much of a a storyline through words, right? If you go to see the show of of Shenyun, there's dancers, and the whole thing is they're like. They really push that they're performing this, like, thousands of year old, like, Chinese tradition that was ousted after communism came. But they're so really this, just doing, like, the Macarena. No, they're, they're, I mean, they're doing this dance, but we'll get into how old and legitimate that part is. Okay. okay. But they really stress, like, these are ancient Chinese traditions from before China was communist. Mm. Um, and, like, we want to spread this, like, this, this vision of, like, what Chinese culture is. And this kind of story, it's like the Nutcracker, where there's no words, right? They're just acting it out through dance. But it's, like, there's this beautiful Chinese tradition, and it's basically shut out by communism. And the communists come in, 
and try and like end the beautiful dancing and the beautiful dancers like rise up and revolt against the communists. Okay. And go to the US to tell their story in every major city. So one of the things I knew, right, was that this was, this show was banned in China. Um, Falun Gong is actually banned in China. Yes. Why? So remember I said it was all about how this is what this was what China was about before communist rule. Yeah. Right? And the Chinese the Chinese government is known for censorship and for what people are allowed to read about and what they're not allowed to read about. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like they're like this is anti-communist propaganda. Get you it out. Get of it out of China. Got it. Okay. So Falun Gong, which is the religion that Shenyun is kind of advertising for, it means Dharma wheel practice or low or law wheel practice. Uh, and this religion, Falun Gong, was actually created in the early 90s. The religion is not very old at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was founded by a guy named Li Hongzi, who they call Master Li, and he created it in China. In the early 90s. So that's when it started, right? It was initially just like a health movement. It wasn't a religion. <laughs> it's going to ring some familiar started bells. Started as an MLM. Um, turned into a full-blown cult. See, and I'm like, so Shenyun is the Sea Org? Like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. All right. So all right. it was initially started in the in the early 90s when uh, Kui Gong was very popular in China and it's kind of like a it's a meditative practice. I would almost put it as like the Chinese kind of equivalent of yoga. Mm-hmm. So it's like breathing techniques and these like repetitive like flow motions. That's yeah. what Kuyong is. And that's in a lot of different Asian traditions. So that's also a part of like Buddhism and um, like Taoism. All of them practice Kuyong. So that's just an, an activity that's part of it. That's like saying like yoga is not a religion. But it's part of a practice for, like, different religious people, right? Yes. So, Kuyong was starting to be really popular in China at that time okay. because after communists took over, and I'm like, oh, you see this, America isn't communist, but you see this in America, too, where there is this, like, it's considered almost, like, hippy-dippy, like, this want to, like, return to yes. spirituality, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what this this uh, Kuyong movement was all about, was people were all into, like, like, getting more into, like, spiritual practices, and it was an old, like, Chinese spiritual practice. People were super into that at the time. So Falun Yong combined, like, parts of Qiyong that people really liked, as well as teaching of morality and virtue from Buddhism and Taoism and other meditation practices. So people were really into it as this, like, peaceful, like, self-helpy mm-hmm. kind of thing. That's right. really how it started. Down with it so far. Right? You're down with the cult so far. But there were, at this point, there were starting to be, like, millions of people that were practicing Falun Gong, and the Chinese government started to see it as a threat because they were like, okay, if they take these teachings over communism and people tell them that this is better than communism, then they're going to want to follow that. So the Chinese government uh, actually banned Falun Yong in 1999, citing it as an anti-communist cult. Okay. Mm-hmm. Primarily because of their rhetoric, and they moved their headquarters to Deer Park, New York. That is when it became a U.S. based nonprofit organization. Okay. Basically, under the idea that they were like religious refugees, right, from mm-hmm. China. Mm-hmm. Now, 
we've talked about before, like, it's no secret that the government of China has, like, kidnapped people before. Yep. Um, and silenced people. So Absolutely. So the government began kidnapping members of Falun Gong and subjecting them to re-education camps, which are basically torture camps where they try to convince them that they're, like, you know, that what they were practicing was, like, wrong and how to re-educate them to be, like, the right kind of Chinese citizens. Oof. Now, I'm putting that out there, and I want to say that even though what the Chinese government does to the people who practice Falun Gong is wrong, Falun Gong is still a cult. <laughs> and we're going to talk about why. <laughs> okay. So the so leader, Everybody sucks here. So everybody sucks here. We don't like the beliefs of the Falun Gong, but they shouldn't be... Like, tortured for those beliefs. Sure. But I don't agree with what they believe in either, is basically what I'm getting at. Yep. So Master Li, who is who founded the Falun Gong movement, he has rallied against what he's called the wickedness of homosexuality. Oh, great. Feminism. Oh, cool. And popular music. (laughs) Ah, always. He teaches that sickness is a symptom of evil that can only be cured through meditation and devotion. Ah, so he's an Mm anti-vaxxer. Yes. 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 And um, he has, there's like an alien mythology to what he believes that's akin to, I put like the Thetans in Scientology where they're like, it's aliens that make you sad or make you feel angry. It's because you have aliens inside of you that you need to purge. Mm -hmm. So he's got that going on too. Like that's part of what they believe. There's an article from the Cult Education Institute that was written actually as the letter of a form, uh, written in the form of a letter to the editor from a man named Samuel Luo of San Francisco. He called Falun Gong a homophobic mind control cult and said that his parents were victims of it, that his stepfather had suffered a stroke and wouldn't seek medical attention because he was convinced he would be cured by Master Lee. They believed that homosexuality was subhuman. And that God was eradicating the gays through disease and natural disasters. Wow. That those are teachings of the Falun Gong. Wow. So how does Shin Young play into this? You well, ask. they, you know, have their artistic outlet, their creative outlet. So Shin Young was founded in 2006 with the stated purpose of revising Chinese culture and traditions from before the time of communist rule. Okay. So they really stress that it, that they're upholding ancient Chinese traditions, and their website barely mentions Falun Gong. <laughs> it's just very tidally tied to the religion and the fact that, and like it doesn't talk about the fact that obviously it's propaganda. And you're like, mm-hmm. well, then how? How is it propaganda if they don't really talk about it? So they mostly just push like this is this is the ancient Chinese tradition like these dances like these costumes these are the things that communism is trying to keep down these are all just symbols of like free China and what China was like before the communists came yeah and then if you really like it and you're like I want to learn more and then they're like well then you should you learn about Falun Gong right yes <laughs> so that's how it goes. So they don't really advertise it on their website, but all the people who run Shenyun are part of the Falun Gong religion. And Falun Gong's two biggest tools are Shenyun. That's how it brings in a ton of profit. Oh, I bet. Yeah, it brings in millions and millions of dollars a year. Um, and the other form that they get their money is the Epoch Times, 
which was originally a newspaper that was aimed at spreading information about the persecution of the religion at the hands of the Chinese government. But over more recent years, it has also morphed into a pro-Trump vehicle. And it's become one of the largest financial campaign supporters of Donald Trump. Wow. That's how much money they make. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm, I'm always amazed, like, who goes to these things? Yeah. So he's, the reason that they back him is he's viewed as a hero to the anti-communist China movement. So people that are like, we love China, but we don't like communist China. And they're like, ooh, he gives communist China guff so we're really into him basically um so they've pushed a lot of bad information about vaccines about voter fraud um and about the chinese lab conspiracy that covid was created in a in a chinese lab in ruhong china right shin yun brings in about 25 million dollars annually what Mm -hmm. and their net worth is around 100 million dollars who goes to these shows what's the demographic um, tons of people, but it's mostly people who do not know anything about what it is. They yeah. see the billboards and they're like, I want to go see these Chinese dancers. Like, they don't really know what the, which, which I told you, like, I didn't know about it until, you know, Googling. I was like, what is this? What is yeah. this Shin Yun I keep seeing, like, posters for? What is this show? And then I was like, Colt, what are you talking about? So many go to the shows knowing absolutely nothing about their message, their history, or about Master Lee's teachings. They spent almost $40 million on advertising between 2015 and 2017 alone. Well, I can tell. They've got advertisements everywhere. Everywhere. They have ads everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. So what I want to put out about this is what the Chinese government is doing to the Falun Gong practitioners is the much larger issue that the Xinyun wants to draw your attention to. Mm. That's why they have the Xinyun show. We know other stories about the government kidnapping and torturing people. There are the Muslim Uyghur concentration camps that are still in China right now. Mm. Uh, there's alleged organ harvesting going on by people that are kept in these kinds of camps. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, yes. Detainment. And of course, we all know there's lots and lots of censorship. Um, so Falun Gong is also a very flawed and problematic organization, but they don't deserve what's happening to them in China. No. But if you ever see the posters for Shenyun and you wonder what that is about, Shenyun is a dance organization that is just, it's just there to raise money for Falun Gong. And it is a, a propaganda vehicle for wow. that religion. And it gives money to Trump and, and Republicans. Trump. Yes. yes. So don't go see their show. So that's how that is. And that is Shenyun, the dance troupe slash anti-communist cult. Wow. I will say, unlike other cults, at least there's no weird, like, sex and kid stuff. I didn't find any weird sex and kid stuff. That's true. So, that's nice. Uh, right. <laughs> but still problematic. Right. Are you ready for my next story? I am. For a second, I was like, well, I'll just say, you know what else is problematic? What? Did you hear that Josh Duggar got convicted? I didn't. I'm having kitty porn. I didn't hear that. Yep. But we've talked about Jay Johnston from Bob's Burgers. We sure did. That's uh, Jimmy Pesto Sr. No longer. No longer. He got kicked off the show. Another reason why I just love Bob's Burgers. Because he was involved with the riots. Yep. And the Capitol. And I love how quickly they were like, oh, well, you can't be on our show anymore. No more. It sucks to suck. It does suck to suck. Anyways, yes. Tell me part one. 
of your second story? I, is it is it ghosts? It's not ghosts. God damn it. But I have two questions for you about what you know about these two things. Okay. What do you know about the Donner Party? <laughs> I know. Isn't it, wasn't it a family that got stuck in an area, they had to eat each other. They had, to eat, they had to eat people. And I do know that there was some type of a board, I didn't buy it, but like a Donner party board game that I almost bought for Mary Angela. Mm. But I, I know, yeah, they ate, They it's their first known account or first written account of people having to eat each other to survive. So I was like, yeah, I was like, what do I really know about the Donner party? I was like, I know there's, I was like, I don't even know what the party is. I know there's a group of people, I guess the Donners, and somebody ate some, some people ate some people. That's the gist of what I know. What do you know about the Oregon Trail? <laughs> um, I know that it was a banger game. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, a lot of people died moving out west for the gold rush. Mm-hmm. Did you ever play Oregon Trail, or is it a little before your time? I played. Okay. I played the Oregon Trail, but then we owned the Yukon Trail, okay. which was just like another version of it. Sure. Yeah, played that. Um, I got reinvested or reinterested in the Oregon Trail in the last year because um, Apple Arcade released like an updated version of the Oregon Trail. I was going to say, does it still look the same? Um, No, so they updated the graphics updated. and stuff. Okay. The gameplay is pretty like pretty loyal to the original. Nice. They updated a lot of their treatment of Native Americans and people of color. Well, that's good. (laughs) Which was a a good choice on their part. But it really reminded me, one, how difficult the game Oregon Trail is, let alone, two, how difficult life must have really been on the Oregon Trail. So the Donner Party was a group of people that was... Heading west, mostly along the Oregon Trail, but then they went to take a shortcut called the Hastings Cutoff. Uh oh. So, we're going to talk today about the Donner Party uh, and where things started to go wrong. Because to say where they all went wrong is difficult because a lot went wrong. Oh. (laughs) And in studying the Donner Party and all the things that happened, a lot of the places they talked about, I was like, oh, I remember that from the Oregon, the Oregon Trail. Trail. Like, you gotta go. Oh, right, the game. And there's one part where, where basically you can split and you go, to, you can go to Fort Bridger, um, which supposedly is faster because you're going to cut across. But it always is awful. But it's not as... Because the Oregon Trail is so well-traveled, right? There's a path. There's a beaten path. You can go up and down that road because that's where everybody goes. Yeah. Versus, like, this road where, like, people don't really go that way. So, it's not really it's easy. Not it's not really way, yeah. a way for you to go there. Ugh. So, where are we going to start, right? We have the Donner Party, and I put the most disastrous reality of the Oregon Trail. Oof. The Donner Party, sometimes referred to as the Donner Reed Party, because there were those mm-hmm. were the two major families, was a wagon train of migrant American pioneers crossing the Midwest to California. Of the 87 people who were a part of this, this was in um, 1846. Stephanie, how do you not have that ready to go? Yes, 1846. I was correct. <laughs> so, of the the 87 people who were once a part of the Donner Party, 
48 ultimately survived. Wow. Now, immigrants, and this is immigrants with an E as opposed to immigrants, which means immigrants are like across the country they're already a part of versus mm-hmm. immigrants who are coming from out of the country. So immigrants primarily traveled the Oregon Trail from Independence, Missouri. That's the starting point. It's the starting point of the game as well. It's the starting point of the Oregon Trail. It's like it's based in history. And they move across the Great Continental Divide before following one of three rivers and a mountain pass in what is present-day Wyoming. And they would generally start in early spring, ideally mid-April. You did not want to leave after May 1st. Because then you would definitely get stuck in bad weather. Because the trip was going to take about four to six months. Yeah. Right. And so the later you left, the more you were risking getting stuck in in the winter. And you didn't want to travel in the winter. No. So most people were like, you want to be out by May 1st at the latest. Most people left around mid-April. So there was an early migrant who moved from Ohio to California, and his name was Lansford Hastings. So we mentioned earlier the Hastings cutoff. We'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. But it's named after this man, Lansford Hastings. He had made the trip in 1842, and he encouraged others to do the same because of, you know, he's white, manifest destiny. He was like, come get your plot of land out in California. Mm -hmm. And he wrote and published a booklet that he called the Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California, where he proposed there was a more direct route off of the Oregon Trail that would cut across the, like, across the Great Salt it's like the Great Salt Lake, which is where Salt Lake City is now, but that wasn't there yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm moving to my other notes. Did he suggest his alternate route without actually having taken it himself? No. Really? So he was basically looking at this, map. this map that I will show you, okay? So this is the Oregon Trail. You go up this way and you... Probably Stop in Oregon. If you want, you continue on. You would go through Nevada and California. And this is the Hastings cutoff where he was like, you know, you could probably like save like, I don't know, like 200 miles if instead of going up and around like that, if you just cut straight across here mm-hmm. and you go under the Great Salt Lake. I mean, yeah, if you're looking at the map, sure. So that's his theory. Okay. So as an alternative to the Oregon Trail's standard route through Idaho's Snake River Plain, which was up the Mm -hmm. way I was just showing you, Hastings proposed a more direct route, which actually increased the trip's mileage by about 20 miles. Good job. To California, across the Great Basin, which would take travelers through the Wasatch Range and the Great Salt Lake Desert. So there's a Great Salt Lake there, Mm -hmm. but there's also a Great Salt Lake Desert. Okay. And you can't drink out of the Great Salt Lake because it's salty. salty. So Hastings had not actually traveled any part of his proposed shortcut until early 1846 on a trip from California to Fort Bridger. So he was coming back. He Mm -hmm. wasn't going Mm -hmm. to. Okay. Okay. And Fort Bridger is over here, right? Yep. So you would normally go go Fort Laramie, and if you weren't going to go down that way, you would go across... To hear, right? Mm-hmm. So the guy who owned <laughs> the store there, his name was Jim Bridger, who owned Fort Bridger, he was also inclined to tell people to take the Hastings Cutoff 
because then they would have to go through Fort Bridger because it was like one of the last places to buy supplies. Got it. So he was inclined to be like, yeah, take the Hastings cut off because then they have to stop at Fort Bridger, which he owned, to pick up supplies. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, so that's totally the path you should go. It's way shorter. And also and you we're should absolutely check out Fort Bridger while you're there because it's like the best place I've to I've heard supplies. it's really great. Right. So, they walk in and he's behind the counter and he just like throws on a fake mustache. Um, the fort was a scant supply station run by Jim Bridger and his partner, Louis Vasquez, in Black's Forks, Wyoming. And Hastings stayed at the fort to persuade travelers to turn south onto this route. (laughs) As of 1846, Hastings was the second of only two men documented to have crossed the southern part of the Great Salt Lake Desert, but neither had been accompanied by wagons. So they were like, yeah, you could totally go that way. I went that way. But they were like on a horse. But they were alone on a horse. Right. Which is very different from we took a wagon, which had wheels. All of our stuff. All all our stuff. Correct. He never traveled it that way. He just went through it on his own. And he was like, yeah, this is great. You can go that way. Yeah, totally good. Arguably, the most difficult part of the journey was the last hundred miles across the Sierra Nevada, um, because that's a mountain range, right? Mm -hmm. And the mountain range has 500 distinct peaks over 12,000 feet high, which, because of their height and proximity to the Pacific Ocean, receive more snow than most other mountain ranges in North America. So you really... Don't want to be there. When it hits winter. After October. Oh, Like, no. that's clutch. You really don't want to be there after October, which is why you really want to start before May 1st. Okay? Is that where they first went wrong? Do they leave after May 1st? Yes. <gasps> the eastern side of the range is also notoriously steep. So after a wagon train left Missouri to cross the vast wilderness to Oregon or California... Timing was crucial to ensure it would not be bogged down by, like, you couldn't leave too early because it would be bogged down by the mud created by the spring rains or by massive snow drifts in the mountains from September onward. Got it. Traveling during the right time of year was also critical to ensuring that horses and oxen had enough grass to eat. Yeah. So everything about this travel was the timing. In the spring of 1846, almost 500 wagons headed west from Independence, Missouri. At the rear of the train, a group of nine wagons containing 32 members of the Reed and Donner families and their employees left on May 12th. So almost two Two weeks weeks after what really should have been the last day to depart. Why? Why did they wait and not go sooner slash why did they then go, well, we're going to go now instead of putting it off till next year. So they felt like they were part of like, they were the back end of what was like a massive caravan of people. Okay. So they were kind of thinking like, okay, we're going to follow these people and um, James Reed, which I think we'll get to this, James Reed had heard about the Hastings cutoff and was like, oh, well, we're going to cut all this time anyway because we're going to take this shortcut. So, like, it's okay if we're leaving a little late. It's no big deal. Does he get eaten? Hmm. <laughs> so George Donner, who was born in North Carolina, had gradually moved west to Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois with a one-year trip uh, in Texas as well. And in early 1846, he was about 60 years old, living in Springfield, Illinois. With him was his 44-year-old wife, Tamsin, their five children, 
his brother Jacob, who is 56, his wife Elizabeth, 45, and their seven children. Also traveling with the Donners were a group of five Teamsters, which Teamsters at that point in time were basically like the people who drove your ox carts. Yeah. Right? So they were people who worked for them. So that was just with the Donner family and their employees. We're talking 21 people, 12 of them children between the ages of 1 and 14. Wow. Ugh, that's a lot of people to corral. They were joined by the Reed family. Reed was led by an Irish immigrant. His name was James Reed. He was 45. His wife, Margaret, was 32. They had four children with them and Margaret's mother, Sarah Keyes, who was 70. Okay. Keyes was in the advanced stages of consumption, which is tuberculosis, and she died at a campsite, like, very early in the journey. All right. Um, And they named it Alcove Springs. She was buried nearby, off to the side of the trail, with a gray rock inscribed, Mrs. Sarah Keyes died May 29th, 1846, age 70. Um, They had three men to drive their ox teams, a handyman and a cook, uh, who was the handyman's sister. So that was another... 12 people, excluding um, Sarah Keys, four children uh, aged between 3 and 13. Okay. Within a week of leaving Independence, the Reeds and the Donners joined a group of 50 wagons, uh, which was led by a man named William H. Hustle. And by June 16th, the company had traveled 450 miles with 200 miles left to go. Wow. Mm -hmm. They were doing okay. Before they hit Fort Laramie, Wyoming. Okay. Uh That was, well, they were 200 miles to Fort Laramie. Okay. Um, They had been delayed by rain and a rising river, but Tamsin Donner wrote to a friend in Springfield, Indeed, if I do not experience something far worse than I have yet, I shall say the trouble is all in getting started. So she's like, well, if this is the worst of it, then the toughest part is getting on the road and we're going to be okay. Famous last words. Young Virginia Reed recalled years later that during the first part of the trip, she was perfectly happy. Several more families joined the wagon train that the party grew to be about 74 people. Wow. With 33 being children under the age of 14, the youngest having been born on the trail. Can you imagine giving birth on the Oregon Trail? (laughs) On the Oregon Trail. No. No. No, no. To promote his new route, the Hastings cut off. (laughs) Lansford Hastings sent riders to deliver letters to traveling migrants to tell them, like, hey, are you on your way to California? You should go this way. Skip the Oregon Trail. You need to take the Hastings Cutoff. (laughs) They're, like, handing out pamphlets like they're in Shenyang. Like flyers. Right. Like they're in (laughs) Shenyang. On July 12th, the Reeds and the Donners were given one of these letters. Okay. Hastings warned the migrants that they could expect some opposition from Mexican authorities in California and advised them to band together in large groups. He also claimed to have worked out a new and better road to California and said he would be waiting at Fort Bridger to guide the migrants along the new cutoff. Hmm. Okay. On July 20th, at the Little Sandy River, most of the wagon train opted to follow the established trail to Fort Hall and keep going north. Right. And they chose not to. There's mistake number two. A smaller group opted to head for Fort Bridger and needed a leader. 
And George Donner's peaceful, charitable nature made him the group's first choice. The members of the party were comfortably well off by contemporaneous standards. They were pretty, like, wealthy people. Yeah. Um, And even though they're called pioneers, most of the party lacked any real survival skill experience or any time out on the trail. They were just pretty well moneyed. Yeah. So they could afford to make the trip, but none of them really had any experience. Ugh. Uh, So, additionally, the party had little knowledge about how to interact with Native Americans. A journalist named Edwin Bryant reached Black's Fork a week ahead of the Donner Party. Mm -hmm. He saw that part of the trail was concerned that that it might be difficult for wagons in the Donner Group, especially with so many women and children. Mm -hmm. He returned to Black's Fork to leave letters warning several members of the group not to take the Hastings shortcut. Oh, no. By the time the Donner Party reached Black's Fork on July 27th, Hastings had already left. Hastings, who was supposed to be leading them across the cutoff, leading the 40 wagons of the Harlan Young group. So he took another group, and they didn't wait for the Donners. They were He was just like, I'll just take y'all. It's cool. I'll come back for them. No big deal. <laughs> so they're going to try to do it on their own. No big deal. With no guide. Right. Because Jim Bridger's trading post would fare substantially better if people used the Hastings cutoff, he told the party that the shortcut was a smooth trip. Devoid of rugged country and hostile Native Americans. And would therefore shorten their journey by 350 miles. Water would be easy to find along the way, although a couple of days crossing a 30 to 40 mile dry lake bed would be necessary. Reed was very impressed with this information, and he advocated for the Hastings cutoff. None of the party received Bryant's letters warning them to avoid Hastings' route at all costs. In his diary account, Bryant states his conviction that Jim Bridger deliberately concealed the letters, a view shared by Reed in a later testimony. Wow. So he thinks, right, people think he he deliberately kept that information from them so that they would have to go to Fort Bridger. To buy supplies. Oh <laughs> They'd have to go to his store, basically. At Fort Laramie, Reed met a man who was, a, who was an old friend named James Kleiman, who was coming from California. Kleiman warned Reed not to take the Hastings cutoff. Oh, my God. Telling him that wagons would not be able to make it and that Hastings' information was inaccurate. Tamsin Donner was described at the time as gloomy, sad, and dispirited at the thought of turning off the main trail on the advice of Hastings, whom she considered a selfish adventurer. Yes. She was like, that man don't know nothing about traveling with anybody. Like, he only does shit on his own. I don't think we should follow that path. I should have listened to her. On July 31st, 1846, the party left Black's Fork after four days of rest and wagon repairs, 11 days behind the leading Harlan Young group, so the group that Hastings was with. Mm-hmm. Donner hired a replacement driver, and the company was joined by the McCutcheon family and a 16-year-old boy named Jean-Baptiste Trudeau from New Mexico, who claimed to have knowledge of the Native Americans mm-hmm. and the terrain on the way to California. Did he lie to? I, don't, I wouldn't say that he lied, but I'm like, I don't know how much help he's going to be. Yeah. The party turned south to follow the Hastings Cutoff. Okay. Within days, they found the terrain to be much more difficult than described. 
Drivers were forced to lock the wheels of their wagons to prevent them from rolling down steep inclines. Several years of traffic on the main Oregon Trail had left an easy and obvious path, whereas the cutoff was more difficult to find. Mm -hmm. Hastings wrote directions and left letters stuck to trees. Oh my god. On August 6th, the party found a letter from him advising them to stop until he could show them an alternate route that he had taken with the Harlan Young party. Reed and two men named Charles T. Stanton and William Pike rode ahead to try and search for Hastings to see if they could, like, leave the group behind, catch up to Hastings, and bring him back. Yeah. They encountered exceedingly difficult canyons where boulders had to be moved and walls had to be cut off precariously to a river below. What? A route likely to break wagons. In his letter, Hastings had offered to guide the Donner Party around the more difficult areas, but he rode back only partway, indicating the general direction to follow. What? Stanton and Pike stopped to rest, and Reed returned alone to the group, arriving four days after the party's departure. Without the guide they had been promised, the group had to decide whether to turn back to try and rejoin the traditional trail or follow the treks left by Harlan Young Party through the difficult terrain of Weber Canyon or to forge their own trail in the direction that Hastings had recommended. At Reed's urging, the group chose the new Hastings route. Their progress slowed to about one and a half miles a day. What? Now, mind you, traditionally people traveling on the Oregon Trail are traveling about 15 miles a day. Yeah. Right? So they're already way behind and they're only getting about a mile and a half a day because of the terrain that they're trying to, like, cut through and get around. And it's about to be August. It's it's already late August. Oh, my gosh. It sounds like it's time to set up camp. This is your new home. So their progress slowed to about a mile and a half a day. All able-bodied men were required to clear brush and fell trees and heave rocks to make room for their wagons. Mm. As the Donner Party made its way across the Wasatch Range of the Rocky Mountains, the Graves family, who had set off to find them, caught up with them. This brought the wagon train to 87 riders, 39 of them children 14 and under, across 60 to 80 wagons. It was August 20th by the time they reached a point in the mountains where they could look down and see the Great Salt Lake. Wow. So that means they in, went not in that amount of time, right, they've only gotten to there. Wow. They haven't even gotten oh my God. across. Ugh, no wonder they all die. Hmm. <laughs> 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 It took about another two weeks to travel out of the Wasatch Range. The men began arguing and doubts were expressed about the wisdom of those who had been chosen to make the route. Mm. In particular, James Reed. Yeah, he's had some bad ideas from the beginning. Food and supplies began to run out for some of the less affluent families. Staten and Pike had ridden, the people who had ridden out with Reed, but had became lost on their way back. By the time the party found them, they were a day away from eating their horses. Jeez. Luke Halrahan, who was a young sick man with consumption the Donners had been caring for since they hit the Little Sandy River, he died of tuberculosis on August 25th. A few days later, the party came across a torn and tattered letter from Hastings. The pieces indicated there were two days and nights of difficult travel ahead without grass or water. Mm. The party rested their oxen and prepared for the trip. 
After 36 hours, they set off to traverse a thousand-foot mountain that lay in their path. From its peak, they saw ahead of them a dry, barren plain, perfectly flat and covered with white salt, larger than the one they had previously crossed, and, quote, one of the most inhospitable places on earth. The oxen were already fatigued and their water was nearly gone. The party pressed onward on August 30th, having no alternative. In the heat of the day, the moisture underneath the salt crust rose to the surface and turned it into a gummy mass. You know, that like wet, muddy, cracked... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the wagon wheels sank into it, in some cases all the way up to the hubs. Oh my gosh. The days were blisteringly hot. The nights were frigid. Several of the group saw visions of lakes and wagon trains and believed they had finally overtaken Hastings. After three days, the water was gone. Some of the party removed their oxen from the wagons to press ahead to find more. Some of the animals were so weakened, they were left yoked to wagons and abandoned in the desert. Nine of Reed's ten oxen broke free, crazed with thirst, and just ran off into the desert. Wow. Many other families' cattle and horses had also gone missing. The rigors of the journey resulted in irreparable damage to some of the wagons, but at this point, the only lives that had been lost were the two people that had mm-hmm. died of consumption. Yeah. So, um, so Sarah Keys mm-hmm. and Luke Howrahan, the guy who had just passed away. So, so far, even though they've lost a lot of oxen and cattle, those Nobody's are the only died. two people who have died. Okay. Instead of the promised two-day journey over 40 miles, the journey across the 80 miles of the Great Salt Lake Desert had taken six days oh instead of two. None of the party had any remaining faith in the Hastings cutoff as they recovered at the springs on the other side of the desert. They spent several days trying to recover cattle, retrieve the the wagons left in the desert, and transfer their food and supplies into other wagons. Mm -hmm. So, like, condensing everything. Mm -hmm. Reed's family incurred the heaviest losses, and Reed became more assertive, asking all the families to submit an inventory of their goods and their food to him. He suggested that two men should go to Sutter's Fort in California. He had heard that John Sutter was exceedingly generous to wayward pioneers and could assist them with extra provisions. Charles Statton and William McCutcheon volunteered. The remaining serviceable wagons were pulled by teams of cows, oxen, and mules. Whatever animals they had left, they were tied together to try and pull the wagons. Wow. It was the middle of September... And two young men who went in search of missing oxen reported that another 40 miles of desert lay ahead. Oh, no! Their cattle and oxen were now exhausted and lean, but the Donner Party crossed the next stretch of desert relatively unscathed. The journey seemed to get easier, particularly through the valley next to the Ruby Mountains. Despite their near hatred of Hastings, (laughs) they had no choice but to follow his tracks, which were now weeks old. Mm. On September 26th, Two months after embarking on the cutoff, the Donner Party rejoined the traditional trail along a stream that became known as the Humboldt River. The shortcut had probably delayed them by a month. Wow. And they had already left two weeks late. Good Lord. Along the Humboldt, the group met the Paiute Native Americans, who who joined them for a couple of days, but ultimately... stole or shot several of their oxen and horses. Damn. By now, it was well into October, and the Donner family split off to make better time. 
Two wagons in the remaining group became entangled, and John Snyder, who was one of the travelers, he angrily beat the ox of Reed's hired teamster, Milt Elliott. When Reed intervened, Snyder proceeded to rain blows down on his head with a whip handle. When Reed's wife attempted to intervene, she too was struck. Reed retaliated by fatally plunging a knife under Snyder's collarbone. That evening, the witnesses gathered to discuss what was to be done. United States laws were not applicable west of the Continental Divide. (laughs) Wild, wild west. In what was at that time considered Mexican territory. Mm -hmm. And wagon trains often dispensed their own justice. But George Donner, the party's leader, was a full day ahead of the main wagon train with his family. And Snyder had been seen to hit James Reed, and some claimed that, like, they saw him hit Margaret as well. Mm -hmm. But in general, Snyder had been a more popular person in the group than Reed. Uh Uh-oh. And so people suggested, someone suggested he should be hanged, but eventually a compromise came that he should basically be forced to leave the camp without his family. So they were taken care of by other families. Reed departed alone the next morning unarmed, but his stepdaughter Virginia rode ahead and secretly provided him with a rifle and food. Oh, that's good. Oh, okay. All right. So he's on his own. The trials that the Donner Party had so far endured resulted in splintered groups, each looking out for themselves and distrustful of others. Grass was becoming scarce and the animals were steadily weakening. To relieve the animals' load, everyone was expected to walk. Louis Caseberg ejected an elderly man named Hardcoop from his wagon, telling the elderly man that he had to walk or die. Jeez. A few days later, Hardcoop sat next to a stream, his feet so swollen they had split open. He was never seen again. William Eddy pleaded with the others to find him, but they all refused, swearing they would waste no more resources on a man who was almost 70 years old. Wow. Meanwhile, Reed caught up with the Donners and and proceeded with one of his teamsters, Walter Heron. The two shared a horse and were able to cover 25 to 40 miles a day. The rest of the party rejoined the Donners, but their hardship continued. Native Americans chased away all of Graves' horses and another wagon was left behind. With grass in short supply, the cattle spread out even more, which allowed the Poyates to steal 18 more during one evening. Several mornings later, they shot another 21. Wow. Okay, so they're just losing everything. So far, the company had lost nearly 100 oxen and cattle, and their rations were almost completely depleted. With nearly all of his cattle gone, Wolfinger, who was a wealthy German immigrant, we don't have a first name for him, there's like the Wolfinger couple, he stopped at the Humboldt sink to cash or to bury his wagon and like hide some of his goods. Reinhardt and Spitzer are two men who stayed behind to help, but they returned without him reporting that he had been attacked by Poiwates and had been killed. One more stretch of desert lay ahead. The Eddy family's oxen had been killed by Native Americans, and they were forced to abandon their wagon. Mm-hmm. The family had eaten all their stores, but the other families refused to assist their children. The Eddies were forced to walk, carrying their children and miserable with thirst. Margaret Reed and her children were also now without a wagon, but the desert soon came to an end and the party found the Truckee River in beautiful, lush country. They had little time to rest. The company pressed on across the Sierra Nevada, 
before the snows came. No, no. Stanton, one of the two men who had left a month earlier to seek assistance in California, found the company and he brought mules, food, and two Miwok Native Americans named Luis and Salvador. He also brought news that Reed and Heron, although haggard and starving, had succeeded in reaching Sutter's Fort in California. So they got there and that they were going to bring help to come back. Oh, man. By this point, to the bedraggled, half-starved members of the Donner Party, it must have seemed that the worst of their problems had passed, as they had already endured more than many of the emigrants ever did. And that's where we're ending part one. So some of them got away, they're still stuck, and the snow's about to come. So, right, the ones that got away, like, a few people went ahead, Mm because they were like, we're going to go ahead, we're going to see how much space is left, like, how much further we have to go, what's the trail, Yeah, and then where can I get supplies and bring them back to you, and bring them back to the family. And most of the family at this point are up in the mountains, so they've made it into the Sierra Nevada, like, Mm -hmm. mountains, that's where they're at now, and it is... Um, the end of September. Oh. And they're like, okay, like, we're almost there. This has got to be it. This has got to be and the worst like, of it. Right, this has got to be it. And all of them were like, oh, well, we've already been through the worst of it. Because they've already, after everything they've been through. They've been through so they've much. They've already been through more than most people who went along the trail have been through. They should have just stayed on the main path. And that's where we're going to end this week's story. Tune in next week to finish 2021 with a story uh, about people eating each other. So, yeah, we talked about Shen Yun and we're talking about the Donner Party. Cults and And right now, like, so we've talked about everything that they went through before they got snowed in. And then that's where the the famous part is. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. Good Lord. Oof. So if you like our show, we want to thank you for listening. Happy holidays. Happy Christmas Eve Eve. You should totally support our Patreon. You should send us an email, deadtimestories at gmail.com. You should write us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Yes, please. And then do it again with your other emails. We know you got them. And we'll see you next week for New Year's Eve Eve. Eve Eve. That's it. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this has been... Dead Time Stories. Thank you for listening. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Curtison. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman.